Just got to grab this. So if you got your Bible, turn with me to John 15. John 15, we continue in our series in the Gospel of John. And I'll give you just a sec to get there. So as you're turning, let me ask you a question. Today was the last day of your life. Today was it. What would you point to as the thing that gave your life meaning? Today was the last day that God gave you on earth. What would you point to? Someone then approached you and said, this is your last day. What has made your life meaningful? What's given it purpose? What's made it valuable? This is it. It's the end of the road. What would you say? What would you point to as the thing that has made your time, whether long or short here on the earth, a time that was meaningful and impactful? Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In verse 12, Paul says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation, he's talking about Jesus as the foundation there. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones and wood and hay and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives... He will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What from your life would emerge, will emerge from the fire of testing? What will prove to be of eternal value and merit that you have spent your time and your energy and your money and your gifts and your skills What will emerge from that fire of testing? Or how about 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19? My favorite chapter in all the scriptures on discipleship. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. At the end of that chapter, verses 19 and 20, Paul says, For what is our hope or our glory or our joy? Is it not you? For you indeed are our glory and our joy. At the coming of the Lord Jesus... He's talking about the idea that investing in the Thessalonians was not time poorly spent, but saying that they, in fact, will be his glory and his joy when the Lord Jesus comes again for him or when he meets the Lord Jesus and is brought home to him. So the question to us is the same. What will bring you glory and joy in the presence of Jesus when he comes? What is it that you will have spent your life on that when Jesus appears or brings you home, what will you point to? Say, this, this is my glory, this is my joy in your presence. You wouldn't be ashamed to point to it, or sheepish about pointing to it, but say, this, this is how I spent my life. So, so far, as we've looked at John, at the Upper Room Discourse, we've seen a couple things. This time where he's, the last night he has with his disciples, and in John chapter 13, we remember he gave them a command to love one another through sacrificial acts of service. He washed the disciples' feet, then he said, I give you a new commandment, love one another. As I've loved you, love one another. Do we remember this? Yeah, so that's where we started. This beautiful moment where he tells them, the first thing I want you to know is that you need to love each other. And then in chapter 14, we went from this command to love in practical, sacrificial ways. We went to chapter 14, and we saw there that he wanted to give us peace. You remember this? 
He said, look, I'm not going to be with you disciples, and I know that's going to give you a trouble. I know you're going to be troubled in spirit. Because you're going to be troubled, I want, I want to give you peace. Let me show you how you can have peace, even when I'm not physically present with you on the earth. And those same things he said to the disciples, they apply to us, that we would have peace for our troubled hearts, and he has an ability to give that. My prayer is that this week, even as you perhaps meditated further and longer on John 14, maybe you got together with your life group and you discussed it, that what you found is that you were, you were seeing in practical ways, ways that Jesus has, if you've known him and walked with him, imparted peace to you at times. that You, you weren't even sure how he was doing that, and you recognize that what he's talking about in John 14 is exactly what he's done in your life. And what that did is caused you to say, I can count on that kind of peace being given to me in the days ahead. I can count on the peace of Christ being imparted to me because he has it to give and no one can stop him from giving it. So now we come to John chapter 15. And so we've seen this command to love sacrificially and we've seen this impartment of peace, this promise to be able to give it and ability to be able to give it. And now we come to John 15. And in John 15, in the first 11 verses, the only ones we're going to look at today, in those first 11 verses, we're going to find that Jesus wants to put in front of us and in front of the disciples, a vision for a life of joy and impact in his name. A vision for a life of joy and impact. A kind of life that will stand the testing that 1 Corinthians 3 talked about. The kind of life that 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 talks about. Where there is glory and joy in the presence of Jesus. So, if you're at John 15, here's what we'll find to be the big idea, and then we'll read it together. It's this, that every Christian is called to live a life of joy and impact. Every Christian, every follower of Jesus is called, and that term is important, you recognize that, right? It's not just suggested, but, but called, commanded to live a life of joy and impact. And I'll tell you why those two terms are really important. You'll see them in our text today. And then we'll kind of unpack that together. So look with me at the first 11 verses of John 15. And let's look at how Jesus describes a life of joy and impact. Beginning in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. 
Let me pray for us as we examine this passage. Lord, come now through the power of your Spirit and instruct us by your Word. Lord Jesus, we love your words. They are precious to us. We cling to them. They are life. They are bread. And they do give us joy. So help us to see now what it means to abide in you. We thank you for the command to bear fruit. We thank you for the promise that if we abide, we will bear fruit. We pray that you show us how now. Grow us in your image and your likeness. And would you, Holy Spirit, speak to those who are not in Christ today, present here with us, so thankful for them, we pray that you draw them. That's your work, Holy Spirit. We ask you to do it. We ask you to show the joy-filled, impactful life that is in Christ. They may see it, and they may seize it as you offer it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in these 11 verses, Jesus offers the disciples three things. He offers them a calling, he offers them a means, and he offers them a promise. A calling to bear fruit, to make an impact in the world, to live a life of meaning. Then he offers them a means by which they can have that impact. So he doesn't just say, you got to bear fruit, you got to make an impact, and then say, now go get them. But he gives them a means by which they might do that. And then after giving them a means, he gives them a great promise about the joy that will be present in the life of the person who chooses to take up this life of impact. Do you see that? So those are the three things Jesus wants to do in these 11 verses, and we want to spend a little time examining those, all of them related to the life of joyful impact. So let's look at that first thing, the calling that Jesus gives. And that calling is simply this. You'll see it in your sermon notes, that Jesus gives all those who are his a call to bear fruit, a call to bear fruit, to make an impact in the world. Now, you notice at the beginning in verse 1, the first thing Jesus said was, I am the true Vine. Now there's a little more going on here than just another one of his I am statements. It's the seventh of his seven I am statements. If you've been with us in John, you remember the I am statements? You've been tracking with us? This is the last one. And in this, Jesus is not just kind of using a good metaphor. He's actually referring back to something from the Old Testament. Again and again in the Old Testament, Israel, God's chosen people, are called a vine. But every time, or almost every time, In places like Jeremiah 21 or Psalm 80, whenever they are referred to as a vine, they're always chastised by God for not bearing fruit, for not being the kind of vine that he intended them to be. And so when Jesus, in in verse 1 here, says, I am the true vine, what he's saying is, I am the one who is now the complete fulfillment of all that Israel should have been but failed to be, that's me. I've come in the same way that when Jesus turned water into wine, we learned that he was saying, I'm the true means of purification. These purification rituals that you go through that are in the Old Testament, I've now come to be the fulfillment of that. I am, I am the one that ultimately makes you pure. Do you remember that in John chapter 2, right, if you were with us for that? In the same way here he's saying, in John 2 he's essentially saying, I replace the old purification system. Because I'm the new way to be pure. I'm the new way to be made clean before God. And when he says, I'm the true vine, he's saying, I am the one who is able to make you bear fruit. My people, Israel, who were supposed to, didn't. But I now will in the way that it was always intended that it would be. So when he says, I'm the true vine, that's what he's saying. That he's really, in a sense, replaced Israel as the representation of the one who represents God on the earth. 
when he says that. Now, here's what he's saying. He's saying, by using this metaphor of a vine and himself the true vine, he's giving us an expectation that God wants to make an impact in the world. The metaphor of the vine revolves around the idea that this vine is supposed to produce something. Do you see that? It's made to produce something. In other words, it's meant to make an impact in the world. And Jesus has come in and says, I'm the true vine who's going to make the greatest impact the world has ever seen. I'm going to produce fruit. And then he's going to talk to us about how that's going to happen. So now he builds on that metaphor by saying that there are branches connected to him, the true vine. And who are the branches, did we read? That we are. We're the branches. All who believe in Jesus are the branches. And he says that the branches who abide in the vine will bear fruit. Not just that Jesus would make an impact in the world, but that he as the true vine would cause that impact to go through those who follow him. So that's where the metaphor really reaches us with this idea of the branches, okay? So the first thing we need to see is that just by using the metaphor, Jesus is creating an expectation that he's going to produce fruit through his people, the branches, in the world. And therefore we are called to do it. Everybody agree with that? All right, so then the next thing we need to address is we just need to do a little, like can we just a little sidestep here? Because sometimes people read this text and it seems like something Jesus might be saying is that it's possible to be a believer who is saved in Christ and then to lose that salvation where he talks about in verse two and in verse six, the fact that the branches who don't bear fruit are what? They're cut off, they're removed. And so we might look at that and go, oh, is this, this is a little scary. Is this a threat that I can possibly lose my salvation? The answer to that is no. And let me tell you why, okay? A couple of things we want to make sure that we do when we're reading our Bible and studying it well. When we come to a metaphor or to a parable that Jesus tells, one of the most important things to remember in terms of interpreting that metaphor or interpreting that parable is to look for the main point of it and not to try and stretch it too far. So in this case, the to read into the metaphor too much that we could lose our salvation is trying to take the metaphor and make it fit perfectly in every type of scenario or nuance. If you're going to use a metaphor of a vine and you're going to say some things bear fruit and some things don't, you're going to have to talk about the branches connected to the vine. We shouldn't conclude from that, and I'll tell you why. We shouldn't conclude from that that what Jesus is implying is that someone can lose their salvation. What we need to do is understand that the main point of the metaphor is that the branches who are connected to the vine, they do what? They bear fruit. And we are called to bear fruit. That's the big idea. Now we can draw on the metaphor and learn more, but we have to look other places in Scripture to understand if we're stretching the metaphor too far when we think about the idea of possibly losing our salvation or, or if that is what the metaphor is teaching and that's an appropriate use of the metaphor. Here we see that if you take the metaphor that far, you've stretched it too far and you've missed something. You've lost something. And let me tell you why. Three reasons why I think that's the case, okay? Number one is this, verse 8 of the very same text, what did he say? Look at it with me in verse eight. He says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so what, church? Prove to be my disciples. And so prove to be my disciples. In other words, what he's saying is, fruit bearing proves we are truly disciples. If we don't produce fruit, then we aren't. Not we cease to be. He didn't say, I want you to bear fruit so you don't stop being my disciple. He said, I want you to produce fruit so that you prove you are truly my disciple. Do you see the difference? In other words, what he's saying is, those who don't produce fruit were never actually my disciples. They may have appeared to be. Think about Judas who just left the room. Right? They may have looked like it at every turn. They may have been at church a lot. They may have hung out with Jesus when he was on the earth. 
But when it came down to it, there was no fruit bearing. And because there was no fruit bearing, there was no evidence that they were truly disciples. So rather than say you've lost something that you had once gained, he's saying you never had something that you may have even looked like you had, but you didn't. And fruit bearing is the evidence. But we can go even a little further. That's reason number one why I don't think this is teaching us we can lose our salvation. But reason number two is John chapter 8, verse 31. I'm going to give you three things all from John because I just want us to stay right in John. We could go all over the scriptures for this. But John 8, 31, where Jesus says this, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide, there's that word abide again. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Same idea as verse 8. A few chapters earlier now in the Gospel of John, everyone who's truly a disciple continues to abide in Jesus and the truth that he's taught. Those who don't abide never were truly disciples. In other words, he doesn't say, if you abide in my word, then you will remain my disciples rather than stopping being my disciples. He says, if you abide in my word, then you show that you truly are my disciples. It's a call to persevere in the truth that Jesus has taught. Yes, church? The precious truth of the scriptures that all who are in Christ will remain in Christ because he will hold us fast. That we will will persevere in him and not shrink back. And then last one, John chapter 6, verse 37. I think this is the most convincing one to me. But in John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus said this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, would Jesus say that in chapter 6, and only a few chapters later in chapter 15, using this metaphor, he says, those who don't bear fruit, those who don't abide, will be cast out. Well, he's just said in chapter 6 that all who come to him, all the Father gives, will come. If the Father's given you, you will come. And if you will come, you will never be what? Cast out according to chapter 6. So could we be talking about in John 15 people who are truly believers and then Jesus casts them out because they just didn't bear enough fruit? No. We're talking about those who may have had the appearance of believers in speech and word, but not those who truly were connected to the vine, who, who truly abide in the vine and therefore produce fruit. Okay, you with me? All right, so those are three reasons just from the Gospel of John why we don't want to stretch this metaphor to mean that we can lose our salvation. I know that's a little bit of an aside, but it's an important thing because people read this passage and they get confused. I want to make sure we don't get confused, all right? So now let's ask the question, why must we bear fruit? Why must we bear fruit? Well, we already saw in verse 8 to prove we're disciples, right? To prove that we are disciples. That's the first thing that the text tells us is why we must bear fruit is because, according to verse 8, it proves, it shows that we're his disciples. Now let me tell you something here. I don't think what Jesus has in mind is to set up a scenario where you and I spend all of our lives asking, am I bearing enough fruit to prove that I'm his disciple? Have I, have I produced enough yet? And, and when I've produced enough, somebody tell me so that I don't have to fret anymore that it's truly been proven now. Do you see the possibility there that you could get into that mindset? Here's why I know that's not what Jesus is up to. Because in verse 3, right after he said to the disciples, I'm the true vine, and he talked about the necessity of bearing fruit, and if you don't bear fruit, then you're thrown out. Right after he said that in verse 2, what does he say to the disciples in verse 3? You are already clean. That's another variation of the word he used for pruned. He had just said in verse 2 that all those who do bear fruit, the Father prunes 
so that they would bear more fruit. Have you ever felt pruned by God? Yeah, it hurts sometimes. Not so fun all the time, but that pruning is there to produce more fruit. You're producing fruit, he prunes you, you produce more, and then he goes to the disciples so that they don't get in this mindset of saying, well, are we producing enough fruit? Are are we? Are we the ones you're pruning? Are we the ones that are getting thrown out? And he says to them, you are already, he says clean, but you could also translate that pruned. You are already pruned. In other words, he's saying, you're the ones I'm pruning. And he's giving them assurance. And now in talking to them, he's describing this whole idea of proving you're his disciples by bearing fruit. Not so that they would sort of try and keep a checklist and go, you know, when, when is enough enough? But so that they would just understand a basic principle. Everyone who's connected to Jesus bears fruit. Now, can I just say to you, church, you do need to hear in there not just an assurance but a warning, a challenge, if I could. Please don't go through your whole life bearing no fruit and yet believing that you have eternal life because you said a prayer one day. Jesus is calling those who are his to abide in him so that they would bear fruit. And there, there is a, a warning. And Jesus is not a, he's not averse to giving us warnings. That's an act of love on his behalf. Do you see that? The warning is an act of love. He's saying, don't, don't look at your life and never serve me and never produce any fruit of godly character or of justice and righteousness and of evangelism and discipleship. Don't, don't produce nothing and think to yourself that you have been abiding in the vine. When you abide in the vine, fruit will come. You'll see it. You'll know it. He's not trying to make us nervous or, or say, you know, when you get to X, then you've proven it. Okay? It's a challenging text, yes? Can I tell you the, the biggest reason why we must bear fruit? Well, it's, not, it's not to prove that we're his disciples. You know the biggest reason? Look at verse 8 again. By this my Father is what? glorified. That's why we want to produce fruit. That's why we must produce fruit. It's not to just, not just prove, prove that I'm his disciple, although there's assurance in that, there's comfort in that. The real reason we want to produce fruit is because Jesus just told us why. It glorifies the Father. It glorifies the Father. That's the motive of the one who abides in the vine. They want Jesus and the Father to get glory from their lives. We talk about this all the time, I know, but just think with me for just a moment. When you ponder the nature of the being of God, doesn't something in you want to bear fruit to bring him glory? When you just think about his nature, when you think about the the way he has worked to save you, isn't your heart filled with gratitude that says, I want to bring you glory? When you think about the nature of his power and his love, Isn't there something in you that wells up that says, oh, I'm filled with faith for my future because of your power and your love. And and as I'm, I'm filled with that faith, I'm so assured of what you're doing and what you will do. I want you to get glory and credit. The real motivation that Jesus is giving us here for why we must bear fruit is because it glorifies God. And that's the heart of the branch that abides in the vine. Now, let's talk about the means of bearing fruit. As I said, he gives us a call, a challenge, a command. 
must bear fruit. That's so plain here. We must bear fruit. And the second thing he gives us is a means by which we bear fruit. We've already been talking about it, but aren't you so glad that he gives us the way to do it? He says, here it is, and it's not be really awesome, which is great news because I'm not that awesome, and I love you, but you're not either. <laughs> this is the beauty of the Christian faith. It's not, it's not this, you've got to be among the most gifted or the most intelligent or, or the most talented or the most gifted. It, he just uses a bunch of bums, to be honest. Just says, because he's the vine, all you are is a branch. But you stay connected to him and wait and see what happens. Wait and see the fruit. It's going to be amazing. And all you had to do, all you had to do was stay connected to him. Just abide. So let, let's talk about that for a minute. There's a couple different things, because that's really the crux of the texture that I want to get. The command is bear fruit. And the means, the way, is abide in the vine. And I'm, I'm so glad that that's what he said. That this is the metaphor he chose about how we bear fruit. So look at verse 4 with me. Let's just make a couple observations here. Because it's the natural question to ask, well, how do we do this? And then the answer is abide. So the first thing we see in verse 4 is that it's impossible to bear fruit without abiding in him. It's impossible to bear fruit without abiding in him. Read verse 4 again. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So the first thing is that you can't bear fruit unless you abide. Now, that's a really good thing to know because if you have to bear fruit, if that's the command, isn't it good to know that you can skip all the other ways that you might try and do this? You don't have to try a thousand other ways. Just save the time. Just do the, one, do, the, do the abiding thing. Don't try all the other things. And I love that. I, I think about this every time when I think about having options and trying too many options. When I bought my first house, right before I met my wife, I bought my first house. This is down in Austin. And I needed curtains. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm bacheloring it up and picking some curtains is not the easiest thing, right? And so uh, I, a man and I were dating at the time, and so I was like, well, let's go find some curtains. And here's the thing. If you ever go to Target, have you noticed that you can't get out of there without spending like $50 and you went in to spend five? Because they've got everything you could ever want or need. It's an amazing store. I really like Target, right? And here's what I learned. We spent the entire day, the entire day, we went all over Austin. We went to Bed Bath & Beyond. We went to JCPenney's. We went to, I don't remember where else, Macy's. I mean, we went to, I hate the mall. We spent like two hours in the mall. It's awful. We went everywhere looking for curtains, and everywhere I kind of went, I don't know what these, and a man went, no. Mm -mm." And I was like, okay, good call. Yeah, you're right, they're ugly, they're ugly. We went to store after store after store after store, and at the end of the day, we finally just went, maybe we should just check Target. Went to Target, five minutes, awesome curtains, we're out of there. I wasted my entire day, I could have played golf, I could have gone for a run. I could have done anything. I was stuck in the dang mall looking for curtains because I didn't just trust that Target had everything I needed. (laughs) Now, here's the deal. 
you can skip all the other stores for fruit producing. You can skip them. You don't need to go to any of them. Jesus is the target. Actually, in this metaphor, abiding is the target. You get what I'm saying? Don't waste your time. You cannot bear fruit unless you stay connected to the vine. But here's the great news. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears what? Much fruit. Not just a little fruit. Much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So the end of the verse reiterates what verse 4 already told us. Can't, can't produce any fruit without being connected to the vine, without being in him. But if you are connected to the vine, what will happen, church? You will produce much fruit. It's not maybe it's not possibly, you will do it. So all you have to do is abide in the vine and you will produce the fruit that needs to be produced. Anybody seen the, um, this, is, this is like the most sure, certain promise of a statement you can make. But you know, we get inundated with advertisements that claim things all the time. Anybody seen the advertisements for flex tape on TV? It's the guy who saws a boat in half and then puts the flex tape on it and then just goes gliding through the Everglades where there's alligators. I'm like, there's no way. There's no possible way he's doing that on a bunch of tape. I am dubious about the claims of flex tape, okay? But, you know, this is not a flex tape kind of a claim. This is like when you want the most secure investment, what do you invest in? Like government bonds, right? Or like FDIC cash. That you, that's the most, like, you're going to get the return. It will happen. It's the safest most certain thing to give you a return. All my investment analysts, I asked someone who's an investment analyst about this. And that's what he told me. So trust him, not me, all right? Jesus is saying, this is the most certain investment you could ever make. If you abide in me, you will produce fruit. This is not a flex tape kind of a claim, all right? Now, so how do we know that abiding works and that it's the only option? I mean, what then does it mean to abide? All right, so we know that now. We've seen that abiding works, that it's the only option. That's what verse 4 and 5 are telling us. But what then does it mean to abide? And this, I think, is the most important part for us today because my guess is, I mean, I see a lot of nodding heads, so you're agreeing with me that you have to produce fruit and the only way to produce fruit is to abide? But the hard part is, well, then what does it mean to abide? Have you ever pondered this before? Because it's challenging. So let's, there's a couple things. There's four things in particular I think are really helpful to us, all right? Now, abiding in and of itself, just that word. It's this Greek word that means to remain or to stay. So the way to think about this when Jesus says, abide in me, what he's really saying is stay moment by moment connected to me. Moment by moment, stay connected to me. That's really what that word means. So how do we do that? There's a couple things that we see in this passage and in the use of the metaphor here that I think are really helpful. So abiding means moment by moment with connection, uh, moment by moment connection with Jesus. So the first thing that we can think about that is from the metaphor. So two things from the metaphor of the vine and the branches. The first thing we see from that metaphor is that it implies that we find our nourishment in him. That's kind of the big idea of that metaphor. It's the main, it's the main point of it, right? is that you, if you're going to abide in the vine, then the branch is going to get all of its sustenance 
from the vine, not from something else. It's not even going to look to something else to get that sustenance because it's connected to, it's connected to the vine. And there's such, a, there's such a flow of life coming from the vine that it doesn't want anything else, that it gets its nourishment from the vine. So the question for us then is, are we filled and satisfied by our relationship with Jesus? Do we find it to be nourishing? Do we go to him each day, moment by moment throughout the day, and recognize that what we're receiving from him is life in his words, in his presence with us, and the way he gives peace, like we saw last week. Maybe to say it this way, to say that the branch is gonna abide in the vine because it, it, it gets its nourishment from it is to say that the branch hungers and thirsts for what comes from the vine. Do you hunger and thirst for what comes from Jesus and only from Jesus? I mean, are you hungry for it? Are, are you satisfied by nothing else? Unless you get what Jesus has to give you day by day and moment by moment, if he doesn't reveal to you what he thinks about a situation or how he wants you to navigate a certain scenario, if he doesn't impart to you the peace you need as you parent or work or date or whatever you're doing, if you're not getting from him what you need in that moment, you're going to look for it elsewhere and you're going to find that it ain't Target, okay? Do you hunger and thirst? That's the first thing we see. To abide is to hunger and thirst. My dad really likes Slurpees. He does. He likes a good Coke Slurpee. He told us for a while, he convinced us that he gave up Cokes, and then we found out he was drinking Coke Slurpees, and we're like, I think that's the same thing. <laughs> Whatever, I'll give him a pass. So he really likes Coke Slurpees. He likes them so much that he goes every day and he, and he gets a Coke Slurpee. Uh, and he knows the attendance at the gas station where he gets the Coke Slurpees the most so well that he gave them Christmas gifts this year. <laughs> Not kidding. My dad's an awesome dude. He's really generous. He's just thoughtful. So he, he gave him Christmas gifts this year. But here's the deal. My dad hungers and thirsts for a Coke Slurpee that is the right consistency. And so he will on certain days, go to six gas stations to find, you know, because you go in and the light's not on and it's being mixed still. Some of you are like, I've never had a Slurpee, okay? Sometimes there's, you got a thirst, only a Slurpee's gonna satisfy. And so he'll go, he will go to gas station after gas station after gas station to find the Slurpee that he needs. Do, He is going to listen to this, and there's going to be a conversation. I love you, Dad. My point is this. For the branch to abide in the vine is for it to hunger and thirst. And look, it has to have it. It has to have what the vine gives. And if it doesn't have what the vine gives, it withers. Because nothing else is true food, right? You've got to have it. The next thing we see from the metaphor is this. The metaphor tells us that abiding means glad dependence. A branch does not imagine that it can do anything on its own. And I love this because it means that the fruit we have to bear, in order to bear it, we gladly are dependent upon him and we say, I trust you to work out whatever you're going to do. Whatever you're going to do, you're going to do it. I'm your vessel. 
I'm not immune to hard work. doesn't mean I'm not going to labor on your behalf. But at the end of the day, I don't trust my labor. I don't trust my effort. I don't trust all the, all the work I put in. I trust that you're the vine and I'm just a branch. And all I want is to stay connected to you and it will come. It will come. Have you ever found yourself trying to serve the Lord and you just feel like it's just an uphill climb? Sometimes I wonder if that's a good indicator I'm not abiding. I'm not abiding. Or I'm looking for the wrong kind of fruit perhaps. And he's saying, I've got a different kind of fruit that I'm going to produce here. The vine, the, the branch doesn't have to do anything but abide for the fruit to come. Now, two other things here, two other hints in this text as to what it means to abide. Abiding means moment-by-moment connection to his word. A moment-by-moment connection to his word. In verse 7, we hear this. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, he's not giving us two sort of prescriptions for effective prayer there where he's saying, You abide, and then my word abides, and if both those pieces are there, then you'll be effective in prayer. What he's saying is that these have a reciprocal relationship, right? That you abide in me, and what happens because you abide in me is that you hunger for my word. And so my word then abides in you. And as my word abides in you, then you are connected again to me through that word, You're staying connected moment by moment to the vine by staying connected to his word. Does that make sense? So that's a great little tip or hint that he's giving us there. He's not just saying abide in me and then, you know, figure it out. He's saying you want to abide in me? Let my word abide in you. And you'll be drawn back to me again and again. It will be life-giving sustenance. It will sustain you. Now, here's the thing. We don't abide in his word Or have his word abide in us by spending five minutes a day reading the Bible. We abide by seeking to connect our every situation and our every thought to the truth of God's word. By measuring them against it. By letting it inform our actions. By rehearsing it in the face of despair or confusion. Going over and over and over again God's word. This can only happen, this can only happen when you memorize the word. You have to memorize it. The value of the, of the memorized word of God. Not just, I kind of think I know where that is. I kind of think I remember a little bit about that. But that we would make it a discipline to memorize God's word. In studying this week, I, I found myself reinvigorated to my commitment of memorizing God's word again. Just reinvigorated. So no, not just to read it every day, not just to, not just to know, but to, but to memorize it so that it can be drawn upon, so that I would moment by moment draw upon that word, feast upon it. And as I feast upon it, I will abide in who? In him. So here's my challenge. You ready for a challenge? Your challenge is this. I want you to memorize Romans 8 in the next month. Memorize Romans 8, and then you can do it. Don't groan. You can do it. Because as you abide in the vine, you will bear fruit. And his word will abide in you. And as his word abides in you, you will abide in the vine. My encouragement to you. So here's the challenge. We're going to put this up. Because I'd love for you. I think we have that slide. You can go right here. westshorefree.org slash challenge. We'll send this out in the email this week. We'll put it up on our social media sites. We'll put it on the website. My challenge to you is in the next month. So today's the 23rd. So by the 23rd. Is it the 23rd? Am I right? 23rd. So by the 23rd of March, I challenge you, 
to memorize Romans 8. And when you've memorized it, I want you to go to this website and I want you to tell us that you memorized it. It's a simple form. You'll just put in your name, say mission accomplished. My challenge to this church is to see how many of us will memorize Romans 8 in the next month. And my hope is not just to give you some task, but to give you a hunger, to give you a hunger for the word of God memorized, poured into you. If you got Romans 8 memorized already, you can pick another text. <laughs> All right? Last thing. You guys are generous. I'm running out of time here. Last thing about abiding is that it means moment-to-moment connection, not just to his word, but moment-to-moment connection to his love for us. In other words, it means to be aware of how deeply he loves us on a moment-by-moment basis. And I love that these are the two things he's given us in this text. Not just moment by moment awareness of his word and memorizing it and taking it in. Because that's something that is incumbent upon us to do so that we might abide. That we might abide further and have more moment by moment connection. But I love also that he says here, I want you to abide in my love. Look with me at verse 9 just quickly. In verse 9 he says this. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So two things there. The first thing you see is that he's making parallel the idea of abiding in him and abiding in his love. It's not two separate things. It's one thing. He says, abide in me. And then he comes later in verse 9 now and says, abide in my love. He's giving us an indicator. Well, here's how you can do that. You can be moment by moment aware of how much I love you And I've told you, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. He's not painting the picture again that perhaps, sorry, then he's going to go on to say, if the way that he loves us is the way the Father loved him, and then he's going to go on to say this, well, how do I I stay moment by moment aware of you loving me? He goes on to say in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. He's not saying I'm going to stop loving you if you don't keep my commandments. He's saying you will become increasingly aware of my love for you if you will keep my commandments. So here's a simple way to remember that God loves us. The way the Father loves the Son, the Son loves us. And the way to remember that and hold it in front of us, because it's hard to remember that we're loved sometimes. Would you agree with that? It's easy to forget that. The way, one way he gives us here is take up simple acts of obedience. Just take up simple acts of obedience, things you know he's called you to do. Be faithful to your spouse. Serve them by doing the dishes. Run that errand. Don't put your eyes on that thing. Just simple acts of obedience. And each time you do it, look for him to reveal to you his great love for you. Here's what he's getting at. He's saying that the physical practice, the physical act, will highlight, shine a light on the spiritual reality of his love for you. Physical action like takes a spotlight and puts it on the spiritual reality of his love for you. That's what he means when he says, if you'll obey me, then you'll abide in my love. You'll be moment by moment aware of it. The last thing is the promise. And the bulk of what we need to do is deal with that idea of abiding. So there's four ways of what it means to abide and how we do it in this text. But the last thing that we see is that he says, I've given you this command to bear fruit, not because 
I'm a curmudgeon or a stickler or just being tough on you or telling you, you better do it. Why does he tell us that he gives us this command to bear fruit? This whole passage is about bearing fruit and how we bear fruit. And then at the very end of it, Jesus says, I've given you this command. Why? So that you might have joy and that your joy might be full. That you might have joy and your joy might be full. In other words, what Jesus is saying in his last words here in this little section is he's saying to us, I don't want you, church, to get in your mind that I'm telling you, you better bear fruit and here's how to do it, abide in me, and that it's just going to be this uphill march. He's telling you, I'm inviting you into something that will produce such joy in your life that you can't imagine. I'm giving you a command to bear fruit, but I'm giving you that command for your joy. There is no abiding in the vine and bearing fruit as a result of that abiding that will not produce glory for him and joy in you. It will produce joy in you. Let's pray together. So Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for these words in particular, the challenge to bear fruit and right with it, the means by which we would do it. And thank you that you've made that means that we would abide in you. Love that. So help us to do it. I pray for my brothers and sisters and for myself. Help us to abide not to look anywhere else for our nourishment, for our sustenance, to hunger and thirst for you and what comes from you, Jesus, not to look to the world or the pleasures of the world for those things. They can't give them, but you can and you will. So help us. We're weak, you're strong, and we're so glad. We're so glad to be completely dependent upon you to produce fruit in our lives. We ask you to glorify yourself by doing it through us. We are your eager branches, your joy-filled branches. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.